are listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. In this episode, I spend the whole show going through my security recommendations for building container images, running Docker, running Kubernetes, and running your apps on Kubernetes. It's a tip-packed show where I list much of what I've documented in my courses and in my GitHub AMA around good security practices for every team. I pay particular attention to the first steps you should take, those tasks and habits everyone should be doing, and then talk about some more advanced activities that you'll want to consider once you're done implementing the basics. As with any team and organization, your security needs may be more advanced than I get into here, but my approach to these recommendations are that they are things easy enough for all of us to eventually implement in our software lifecycle. So I hope you enjoy these top security recommendations on containers. Hello, my name is Brett. Today, we're going to go through my top five Docker images, Docker servers, and Kubernetes servers, and basically run the gambit of what I see with my clients, with people in the industry, what we're looking at in terms of like the biggest bang for the buck for your time for increasing the security of your containers from the time you're building it to the time you're running it on servers, everything in between, which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. So we're going to try to go through it fast. I already have a lot of this written down. You can get a lot of this already in my public Q&A on, actually it's like an Ask Me Anything over on GitHub. I'll give you those links. Of course, all the links for all these tools and recommendations will be available. So yeah, and maybe on this one, I'll make a gist or something so that we can all have a page to go to. But I've already got a great reference. I mentioned it a lot in here, so we'll definitely go through that. Let's get into it. There's a thousand tools, right? But the question really comes down for me is, what are the things that I should be worrying about first, because a lot of times we'll see someone get really excited about a tool that they maybe install on their server and maybe it detects rogue shells being started up inside containers. And that's really cool, but they don't actually scan their images for vulnerabilities, right? They don't do sort of the basic stuff first. So I, I wouldn't want you to go down the road of advanced stuff, Im implementing some sort of advanced network security solution when you're not doing the basics, right? Because the things that will get you aren't usually the super elite hacker type of stuff. It's sometimes the most obvious. <laughs> it sometimes has nothing to do with the container and maybe it's just your app and your app becomes the vector. So the nice thing is with containers is we can really lock those apps down so that even if they do become a security vector or a vector for attack, we can at least do some sort of damage mitigation and at least detect it. This is one of my favorite topics for new people because it doesn't actually have to start out as complicated as you want it to be. So let's start with images. And I feel like as much as we all want to focus on Kubernetes, RBAC security and locking down APIs and all that sort of thing, I find that that's not really even a developer's responsibility unless they're full on operations, right? But we all at some point touch the image, whether we're the person that made the Docker file or the, we're the one that makes the... Kubernetes YAML to run that Docker file in an image. Like there's the, all these people that are involved with the process of getting the image to a place where it needs to run. And there's lots of ways that image should be built and ran. And I don't see everyone doing it. So let's go through some of those. First up, it's just brett.show slash security first. So this URL is mostly Docker images and running on Docker. So the brett.show security first, that's this one right here. That will take you to my public AMA. And there's a lot of history here. This thing has been going on for yeah four plus years now. So it started out with just Docker images and Docker hosts. And so we're gonna go through some of this stuff. There are actually, if you just search this channel on security, there's actually a lot of pre other videos that I talk security on. 
So I think the, one of the ones that is the most common for us to all talk about is CVE scanning. You wanna scan for dependencies and you want to scan your image. So if you're a developer, you can scan for dependency problems on your local machine. And some of these can actually be plugged into like VS Code or your actual editor, where it will look at your application dependencies and will tell you when they are out of date, or at least they'll tell you when there's a security vulnerability in the version you're running. And I think that this is often overlooked by developers. It's amazing how many developers don't make sure that these are locked down at least every month. And there's now many ways you can use it to scan. I just had this stuff automatically scanning in the background. And this isn't your container image, but by the time it gets to container image, a developer should actually already be aware of their outdated or insecure dependencies. The two ways that I do this out of the gate, like the two default ways. The first one would be in GitHub. And if we just look for GitHub Dependabot, you'll find a bunch of information about Dependabot, which is now an official GitHub project. And you can read up all about it. And it basically, for all your dependencies, does things. And I can even use it to make sure my GitHub action dependencies are up to date. But by default in your repos, if you're storing them in GitHub, other tools may have a different solution. But if I just go to my GitHub, this is actually one of my courses. It's Docker for Node.js. So I have four pull requests. Now these pull requests, I didn't make. These are made by robots, specifically Dependabot. And it looks at my package JSON file. This is an NPM scenario. So I have a package JSON and it finds and updates all dependencies. You'll get security focused updates in here as well. And you can control all this stuff with a Dependabot file in your repo. By default, you can actually just go in and I think you would go into settings and you would basically go into security. It would be under the security tab and you basically would just check a box and say, yes, enable Dependabot. I think it's enabled by default, at least it is for me. So do that first. But if you're not doing that, or in addition to that, you have to scan your images because these, all these dependency scanners don't include the OS dependencies. So they're not scanning for any apt dependencies you might have in your Docker file. I don't know yet of a Docker file dependency updater. That would actually be pretty cool if we had a, doc, a Dependabot like scanner that would look at your Docker file and would see that you have apt or yum dependencies in there and see if they're out of date. That would be neat, but I don't know of anything like that yet. And for that, you could use tools like Trivi. So over at Aqua Security, so this is another one. This is a CVE scanner that you can scan your code or you can scan your image. And you can actually have it scan an image in a registry. So you can upload it, scan in the registry, or when you're building, you can build, which is what I prefer to do, build my image, immediately scan it with a Trivi scanner or a Sneak scanner. Sneak also provides one, S-N-Y-K. So they're another one. And these are two of my favorites. I tend to like trivia out of the box better because it's just open source and free and is including more stuff now. It actually can also scan infrastructure as code a little bit. So like the latest features are, it can scan Kubernetes clusters and that we're gonna leave for a little bit later when we talk about infrastructure and we talk about Kubernetes. But you need to know how many vulnerabilities you're shipping and then you need to learn how to get rid of those vulnerabilities. So as much as we want to lock down the container, I think one of the first steps is really focusing on getting your app secure. And this is one of the few things you need to do, I think, that's at a basic level. If I walk into a shop and I don't see them scanning their images and then doing something about it, it's we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> if it was your shop, it'd be you and me having a conversation about, okay, let's lock this down. Let's get a process in place for every month. We know what vulnerabilities are new, we know how to at least try to get rid of those vulnerabilities or update those dependencies so that we don't have those vulnerabilities. But my one of my talks this year, and I'm gonna keep referencing a lot of my own GitHub here because I have a lot of this stuff in my own GitHub examples. Two talks that are kind of relevant. So my Node.js rocks in Docker. This was my DockerCon talk. And the thing that this talk does, this is essentially some of the best practices around Node.js, but it by no means is Node.js specific. It just uses Node as an example. So if you make container images, I would recommend watching this because there's about 
20 of the 30 minutes of this video are about making your own base images and what it means to use the default official images for applications like Ruby or Python or Node or any other programming language. When you're using the programming language base images, that may not be the best thing for you. It may not be the most secure. I don't just tell everybody to use Alpine. I'm not always a fan of Alpine. Alpine can present problems. It doesn't have the same dependencies. Those dependencies are really hard to lock down. I go through a lot of that in this video. So I assume that at some point you're gonna to need to make your own custom base images because the official Docker images are often not secure enough. So what I walk you through in this video is how to take a blank Ubuntu image, which tends to have less security vulnerabilities than the default official images, because they're based on Debian. So I take a Ubuntu and then I add Node and my app on top of that to reduce the CVE count drastically by a lot. <laughs> so you wanna do that. That's kind of stuff you can do and it shouldn't affect your app. You know, if you're using an official Python image, try the slim image, then try the latest Python. Well, I'm not gonna talk about that today. Watch this video, watch this video. So that's all in here and the Node.js rocks with Docker. It was fun to make that because you know, you get to do things when you make videos sometimes that you don't get to do on stage, like throw in 40 different memes or something into a talk. But the next one on there is the all hands. So the all hands was more about automation, but part of this is that you can automate these scans. So really, if you're on GitHub or Bitbucket or any other major Git hoster, you should have some sort of automation tool that's built in wherever you're at. And you should take the time to just set up image scanning for every time you build your images. And you should be building your images on every commit, at least on every commit of a PR. And that way you can see if your images are still working, you can test them automatically before the PRs are ever merged. And I talk about all that in this video. So this is more homework for you, go watch this. So this will explain how to do some of that basic automation and you can do that. You can run these scanners. Now, once we get past CVE image scanning, the next thing is on images is that we want to not run as root inside the image. So in that DockerCon talk, I talk about how if you're running a programming language, that programming language image by default will run your app as root in the container. Now, the container root inside the container is not the same as root on the host, right? Just because I have root in a container doesn't mean I can suddenly break out of it and do anything I want on the host. But ideally, we don't usually ever need our apps to run as root. Now, some of you might say, well, there's certain things you need to do for root, and that's true, especially applications like Nginx or daemon-based applications, MySQL, some of these other apps, they typically start as one process. Nginx likes to start at root, specifically for it to have access to control ports below 1080. And then it makes a bunch of worker processes that don't run as root. So your apps probably run as one process it might spin off sub processes, but you really want that main process to not run as root. And how you do that is with the user command in your Docker file. So if I was evaluating your files, if I was reviewing your security, after I checked to see if you're scanning your images and how many vulnerabilities you have and how many outdated dependencies you have, I would then go and look at your Docker file and see if you're running as root. So if I don't see the user, like user node or user Ruby, if I don't see that in your Docker file, then I'm pretty confident that you can't run that as root. Because if you just tried to run it and change the user at runtime, it probably will break, right? File permissions. And so you have to have those concerns. I talk about that in this video. There are other things across my courses that also talk about it. So there's lots of stuff, but watch this video first. Okay, so I've got some questions here. Let's see. Things to consider when running containers is not root user non-root users, since nowadays, most of the containers run by default run as root user. Say, uh, that's a, like you're like reading my mind right now. <laughs> so th that is the concern, right? Now this is specifically about your programming languages. If you're running Redis and other apps that come already ready to run that aren't your app, those you probably just need to leave alone. Those are fine, right? They're usually structured to be secure. But most of the time we're trying to use the cloud infrastructure for that. And I try to use the cloud's databases, the cloud's, you know, Redis is the cloud's memory storage and all that stuff. I want to use theirs, not run my own because they're going to be better at that. So one of the things is you got to change the permissions, right? When you copy in your files, you got to do that dash dash chone. And that 
will make sure that when you copy in your source code files that they are the user that you specify in the Docker file. Now you're gonna to need to make sure when we go to Kubernetes, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, that in Kubernetes, you set up the pod spec so that it's locking all this stuff down as well. And we'll get into that. All right, so that's step two, right? That's step two in a very long list of images, but we'll go through a few more real quick, and then we're gonna jump over to Docker itself. We did dependency scanning that we talked about Docker file slimming down. So there's a couple of other, there's a lot of movement in this space. So if we just talk about how do I make slimmer images? So that video I was just pointing you at, that tells you how to manually do it. But there are experiments and other ways that I talk about that in there as well, including things like distro lists, you know, things that are maybe not the norm default images from Docker. And there are a couple of other companies. I'm just going to mention a few that you can keep your eyes on as I will. So a tow mist was just bought up by Docker. So this company was bought by Docker earlier this year. They announced it on their blog and we don't really know how this is going to play out or how Docker is going to use this tool. But one of the things that they do is they do automatic image vulnerability scanning on every commit. But one of the things that they do is they show how your app is going to change in the PR process. And this is one of the things I've been looking for a long time now. So I'm excited about this company because one of the things I want to know is when a developer is working on new features and maybe let's say I'm the DevOps person, if they're working on a new feature and they change the Docker file, they add something to the Docker file or they add something to their package list, right? And then the PR builds a new version. That new version, I really want to know from a security perspective, am I getting better with security or worse with security in this PR? Are the changes in this PR helping us improve security or not? And one of the ways to know is what is the vulnerability count of this image being built versus the one that's in production now? What's the drift or the diff? I guess we don't really have drift here. What's the diff? And that's one of the things that a Tomis claims to do. So it'll be interesting to see how they integrate that or do, are they gonna put that in a hub? Are they gonna do something with Docker desktop? We just don't know yet, but they have a bunch of information on their website. I haven't actually used it yet, but I just learned about it as a part of the acquisition. So there's that a Tomist. And then the other one, which we're gonna have on the show pretty soon is this free open source tool called Docker Slim. So Docker Slim helps you, it's a tool you run on your machine and it helps you slim down your image. And then it's a, there's a paid for service from the company behind Docker Slim called Slim AI. And what these are trying to do, as well as a few other ideas on there that are similar to this, they're trying to take the grunge work out of you reducing the size of your image, presumably not just for size, but for increasing security by reducing unnecessary dependencies. Now, let me just say for a second that this is a good thing, but there is a little bit of a fad, faddish thing going on with who can have the slimmest image, right? It's sexy now to be slim in container images. So I wouldn't spend too much time on down this rabbit hole of making your image as small as possible. I did some of this work for this DockerCon talk. I did some basic evaluation. I just took Node for example, and I started to look at all the different ways I could build the image and how many vulnerabilities were in that image when I was done. Those are detected vulnerabilities in the image, but it doesn't mean that they're exploitable or that the person would ever even be able to use those things. For example, if your app doesn't run as root and there's some thing that's only affected if you are root, <laughs> then it's not an issue, right? If your app is nice and secure and this dependencies are safe, but there's some tool like curl on the machine that's not really being used by your app, and you, your app is only running as regular user. I mean, if there's all these limitations and then curl itself has a vulnerability, they're not really going to do anything. Like, that's not going to really cause a big risk in your security profile. So don't sweat too much about shrinking your images because one of the arguments I have here is that just because that count is lower, doesn't actually make it a safer image. Like you could just have one vulnerability that's critical, that's specific to your app, that is going to be the cause of the problem when you might have hundreds of other vulnerabilities in there that are not an issue. So it's not just the number, but my opinion is that if you have 500 vulnerabilities, there's no way for you to even comprehend all those. No one's gonna go through all 500 of those and evaluate them. You need to have like 20 or 15 or 10. And that's when it takes work to really get your image down. Now, once I go from like 20 to 15, 
were those five really that important? Should I change out my whole process of how I build an image just to get rid of those five? That's kind of what I explored here. I was using distro lists, which technically was getting me a few less vulnerabilities. I had to completely rework everything. The app runs different. I build it differently. You can't use it. You can't do a lot of things with it. It just is a question of, do I really want to go to that level in order to just have a, a few less vulnerabilities? So you understand your environment. And so just don't go absolute. Just don't go all the way down the rabbit hole. You know, don't take bash out of your shell, the bash shell out of your image. If you don't know how to deal with not having a shell, <laughs> if you don't have tools that let you get into the container and inject a shell when you need it, then you probably shouldn't do that. You probably shouldn't go the hardcore distro list route unless you're pretty advanced in your troubleshooting and your container tooling. Okay. Enough with that. Let's move on to the next thing. Let's see what other questions we got. How can we compare Docker tools and Podman, Builda and Scopio? So, well, let's talk about what those tools do for a second, right? Podman is not really for Kubernetes, right? Podman. So in production, we're really talking about Docker for local use or Podman for local use. And maybe Podman could replace Docker if you were running a couple of servers, right? But once you run a container orchestrator, Podman doesn't have anything to do with it. So I would say I'm not really terribly worried about the security of Podman running versus Docker. Now, if you are running Podman on an, a few individual servers and Docker on a few individual servers, there are some things you can do there. I don't know enough about Podman to know how you need to lock it down because really Podman's just starting up system D services for your containers. So. My point here is that that doesn't really matter. Now, Builda just builds the image. So the tool that you use to build the image doesn't really have an effect on the image output and whether it's secure or not. Every one of these tools builds the same image from the Docker file the same way, right? Now, if you start using distro lists or build packs, which are different tools, then things will change a little bit. But if you're just having a Docker file and you just need to build it with a local tool, none of those matter. Like there's a lot of different tools. You can download BuildKit directly. There's other things you can do, but they all make the same image more or less. So what was the other question? Oh, Scopio. I think the question here is like Cryo, right? Cryo is, if you were going down the Red Hat route of all the Red Hat tools, Cryo is what you're gonna be using in Kubernetes. So that would be something we need to talk about. And we're gonna talk about that in a few minutes. What happens if a process runs as root? What kind of damage can be done to the host? None. If you're in a container and you're root in the container and someone is able to exploit root and get into there, then assuming that your kernel is on a modern patch kernel, because we have had vulnerabilities this year in Linux kernels that affect containers, assuming that your OS is up to date and you're keeping those secure, which is one of the steps we're going to talk about when we get the servers, then running as root in the container does nothing. It's your root in the container, which means you can affect what's running in that container. But you know, if you crash that binary, if you do something funky in the container, you're just going to be recreated somewhere else. And you'll probably get, you'll probably lose whatever root access you had if you were exploiting remotely. So it's just one of those things where when you're running apps as non-root, in a container, they have even less access to do damage in the container. The reality is if someone gets a shell inside one of your app containers, even if they're non-root, they're going to then have usually passwords and environment variables to other things. And that's how they're going to jump away, right? They're going to figure out how to get from that box to wherever that box already has access to some other API or a database password. So they're going to try to figure that out and use your app as a vector. And none of that has anything to do with being root. But we still want every single app as much as possible to all be running as non-root. And that will just allow, it'll be, make it a little bit harder for them to do things in the container. Sometimes with some very few exploits, if you're root in the container, there's a way to possibly break out of the container. But again, if you're patched kernels, if you're keeping that done monthly, you're fine there. But I would still ding you for not running as a root in the container, right? Or, or not running as rootless in the container if you weren't doing that. So hopefully that answers that question. Are they more secure than Docker? Yeah, so that I think I answered that question earlier. Not really. I mean, the, at the end of the day, your images are all the same. Your registries are all the same. It's, you know, when you start talking about what's running on my servers in production, well, it's the image that was built, which the, the build tools don't help make that more secure. And then the security of the servers, the load balancers, the app, in the container and that's inside the pod probably if you're on kubernetes podman and lxc containers are the same no not really lxc lxc is a different way to run containers as well as other things inside containers podman specifically works with system d i'm not really prepared to 
compare the differences there. But I don't know anyone running LXC containers anymore. So <laughs> this is a channel where we talk about orchestration and scale. So we're talking about usually Kubernetes, right? All right, so after you've got your images, so let's presume that we worked on making our image less CVEs. We've slimmed down our image. We're definitely using at least slim variants. We're no longer running as the root user, but a non-root user. And we've changed the permissions on our files so they can run properly in the container. Now, if we were to run Docker on server, there's a couple of things you want to do in Docker. And a lot of these things are mentioned, again, the links were my security first checklist. And a lot of the security recommendations that are in here around do not open up the Docker TCP port or TLS port. There's no reason to do that nowadays. You can usually just do that with SSH and tunneling through SSH using a Docker context. I've talked about that several times on this show. There are videos if you just search Docker context or Docker security or Docker SSH, you'll find all those things there. You can do something also, there's a Docker host scanner, Docker bench security. So Docker bench is a tool you would run on a Docker server to make sure that Docker is configured correctly. And then after you've sort of done that, you've got a way for your containers to be least privileged. Docker itself is least privileged. There are actually some steps in this list that I go down rabbit holes that you don't necessarily have to go down, like enabling user namespace on Docker. But a lot of these are only relevant if you're not running Kubernetes and you're just really running Docker. They get more complicated if you need to run Kubernetes. So a lot of these that have to do with doing things on Docker engine and doing things to the host, they're all in this list, content trust, uh, Sysdig Falco. Falco is a tool that monitors for bad behavior in containers. It's a hands-on tool. Like you do have to get into the weeds with rules, setting up rules to monitor and whatnot, but it's a free open source tool that is plugged into some other paid tools in the industry that you might want to check out. The other thing there is, I don't know if you realize, but if you're just running Docker on a server, you're actually getting a bunch of security features out of the box by default. So in this list, which again, I made it four years ago. I've actually had multiple shows on this. Number one in this list is just use Docker. And when I say that, I mean Docker and Kubernetes and or, it doesn't matter because the very nature of putting your app in a container in a little subset of the operating system where it only has access to its own things, just by the nature of doing that, you're making it better than putting it on the host itself, right? Because if you're on the host, then you could have access potentially to any of the other apps running on that host. And if you're in the container, you're isolated. So presumably you don't have a kernel bug or a zero day kernel exploit. Presumably if you don't have that, then it, they're gonna be stuck in the container no matter how bad your app is or how outdated your dependencies are. That's why I say just use Docker. Docker out of the box, by the way, will also enable things like SecComp and AppArmor. And you can turn on SE Linux with a very easy command line. And there's all these things it does. It reduces Linux capabilities for your app out of the gate. You get none of that if you don't use containers. You get none of that out of the box. So you would have to do each one of those things on its own if you weren't running containers. And most people don't. It's very rare for me to ever see someone running or enabling and making seccomp profiles and reducing Linux capabilities when they're not using containers because it was so much pain. It was a, There was a lot of work involved. So it's easier to just do all this stuff in containers. Docker does it by default. And we're gonna talk in a minute about how you can do that also in Kubernetes. Can all these be applied to Windows containers? Yes and no. You're gonna to have to check with each vulnerability scanner on whether it will scan OS dependencies. So I would say, yes, these scanners would work on your app dependencies, right? So they can just scan your source code for that. They don't need to have a skin, an image, but you're gonna to have to check with each scanner specifically on if it supports Windows binaries and Windows dependencies of the OS. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if, you know, what scanner will detect a old .NET framework version. Not really sure about container scanners for Windows. App dependencies, I would say yes. So, you, so when you go look at these scanners, for example, go look at the Trivi open source scanner, they'll list all like the language specific scanners, right? So you'll look for your app in there it does mention NuGet, so that's good on the Windows side. And so, yeah, so you'll want to make sure that your your OS, so the best you might get is NuGet for a .NET app, but that might have to be a Linux-based .NET app. I'm not really sure, actually. You're making me doubt this more and more, like if there's anything that supports. I mean, Windows is, is such a tough sell because it's, I don't know, less than 1% of all containers probably. 
So that's a, just a gross estimate. I have no idea. I just, based on years and years and years of working with people, I know that there's people that start on Windows containers and eventually they just move their workloads to .NET 5, now .NET 6, you know, to get off of the .NET framework so they can get to .NET Core and just run on Linux. I know multiple Windows shops that are going that route because it's just, it's more work, it's more effort, and there's more edge cases with stuff like this for Windows containers. And it's unfortunate. It's sad that we don't have more people using Windows containers to make them more popular. So it's a chicken or egg problem a little bit. That's a great question though. So you got your Docker locked down. You're doing things on the host. If you're just using Docker, that's all great. So it should be said that, of course, in all these cases, if you maintain your own servers, you must patch those servers and most likely reboot them every month, at least once a month. Eventually, you will get to the point that you're even replacing your servers once a month with a freshly patched version. If you get really mature with your solutions, you don't want to keep servers around long term. That way you can prevent drift. And so there is an entire Docker doc on a lot of this different stuff around what control groups do, the Docker attack service, Linux capabilities, all that stuff. So I gave you the link to the engine security guide. So just read on that, but that's just if you're running Docker, maybe you're running Docker in your CI environments and you just wanna make sure you're up on all the latest security for stuff there. But if you're not running Docker on your server, so if you're running a cloud hosted or a cloud provided Kubernetes, that's one of the ways to go. One of my tips is don't run your own Kubernetes if you can avoid it in any way in production. It's great if you're gonna spin them up temporarily for CI, that's what I do. I spin up a K3S cluster inside of a Docker container. It's called K3D, look up K3D. I talk about it a lot. It's, I'm a fan ever since Victor Farsik over on the DevOps Toolkit channel on YouTube. He turned me on to it. So I'm a big fan of K3D for CI spinning up quick of Kubernetes, testing something, tearing it back down. Right, So I don't worry about that, but in production, I tend to always want to use at least some vendors Kubernetes. Now it might be OpenShift or it might be Rancher, somebody who built the Kubernetes distribution for me, because they're going to be looking out for security stuff for me. And I can watch their blog and their release cycle to make sure that everything's staying up to date. But really I want to run the cloud's version of Kubernetes. They're going to handle security way better than I am. They're going to have better, they'll probably do automatic patching if you let them and you want that because Kubernetes patches have been fast and furious this year and you want to keep on the latest version of Kubernetes. So step one, make sure that you're always on the latest release. If you're not on an automatic updating Kubernetes, which I recommend you do in the cloud, then get yourself on a repetition where you follow you know, just do what I do. If you don't have any other way of doing it, go over to the Kubernetes release page and on the watch, go down to custom and say releases. So this is what I do. This is a trick. If you go here on any repo and do this, whenever they release a new version, I get an email about it. So then I can look into that version. It's usually a patched version and they've been doing that a lot this year. So there's a lot of patches going on. And the way I keep up is I watch the Kubernetes blog, and then I also get an email every time there's a release here. So do that. So that's step one. Before we talk about all this other fancy stuff, if you're not keeping your clusters on the latest releases and you need to be patching your nodes every month with the latest OS patches, we've had kernel bugs this year, that all needs to be kept up to date. So once you're doing all that, then let's talk about your pod spec, Kubernetes things. One of the things you can do if you're running your own Kubernetes cluster is use kubebench. KubeBench, also created by Aqua, which makes Trivi. KubeBench will do what DockerBench does, and it will scan your cluster with benchmarks. This is an st industry standard specification for what you need to be checking for. There's another tool as well. There's a couple of other tools out there like KubeScan and KubeScape. These are all sort of security related things, but th this KubeBench is probably the one you should run first. Like when you're building your clusters, you run this, see what's wrong, you go check it out. It also looks at your YAML. So there's an increasing number of tools. I think Sneak also does this, that are looking at your Kubernetes clusters to try to figure out either in your active clusters or by scanning your YAML, like the tree, the tree.io, which we've had on this show. They're one of these tools that you can use for free or you can pay to get more features or automatic scans or something. And they scan your YAML to make sure that the way you're deploying your apps is safe and secure. So there's 
scanning the cluster, making sure it's configured correctly, and then they're scanning your Helm charts and your customize or just your straight up manifest to make sure that you're building your apps secure. Now, I'm not gonna focus so much on other people's charts, and let's assume that you're using cloud Kubernetes, so at least you've got secure by default set up. You maybe have run a couple of these tools just to make sure that your clusters, you feel good about it, you feel like it's pretty protected, all right? And then we're gonna need to do things to your pod specs. And there's three examples right off the bat, three things you need to do. And I'm not even gonna get into memory and resource limits, but understand that your application and all these tools will warn you usually when they scan to say you need limits and reservations for all your apps, for memory, CPU, disk, that's all fine. Definitely do that. Resource exhaustion is not in my top five security risks because while availability is related to security, that's not something that's going to, in my mind, it's not gonna always really create a risk where someone can get into my systems. Someone can do a denial of service if they know that I'm not limiting stuff or they're trying to resource exhaust my nodes or whatever. But before we do that, I'm gonna look for other things related to, well, three things, privilege escalation, set comp, and what user you're running at. And you've done this all in your Docker file and in Docker, but let's talk about how that's done in Kubernetes because it's done differently. So the first one is seccomp. So in case you didn't know, Docker by default enables seccomp. It's one of three or four security features in Docker that it you know provides by default. I mentioned before, Linux capabilities, App Armor, SE Linux, seccomp, they're all related and can all be used sometimes together, sometimes you just need to focus on one of the tools without, so you don't increase the complexity. But if you've got one of these tools, usually your security team decides which tool that they prefer you use. But the point here is with SecComp, Docker enables it by default out of the box and it comes with these default profiles. But Kubernetes, sadly, I think it was sort of like early on, they didn't have the defaults set, so it's not enabled by default. And you should fix that for every one of your apps. Obviously you need to test, but if you throw these in, container D or Docker, whichever one you're using underneath, should have a default runtime profile. I believe that the default profile was added to container D recently, like within the last year, I think. I could be wrong on that. But the point here is that you put these in, it, in, it reduces the capabilities of what's going on in the container. It puts a better boundary around the container and it should be on by default, in my opinion. There's, I think, good historical reasons for why it wasn't. But for most apps, in my experience, this runs fine. Even though it locks it down a little bit more, it doesn't affect your app usually. But you should test, right? The next layer on top of this is changing the security context. So run as user and run as group. Now, this is an interesting little quirk that you'll find. If you put in your Docker file user node, that's not gonna work great in Kubernetes when you do this. So what I'm doing is I'm telling Kubernetes to run with a specific user ID and a group ID. You can standardize on whatever you want. Some teams standardize on 1000 and they create a user in the container image and they give it ID 1000, they hard code it. Many examples of doing that, if you just go look up the node default image, some of the other ones do it as well, I think Ruby does it. And they create users and they hard code the ID. You can set whatever standard you want. Some people do 1111, 9000, something that would never be used accidentally by some other tool. But the point is to just kind of standardize so you know that they all run as the same user ID. That same user ID in the container needs to be represented in the Docker file. So they need to match. And so you can't type, if you type something like node here as the name, you get these warnings and errors out of Kubernetes. So you need to stick with numbers and you need to use the numbers in your Docker file. So when you say user node you're gonna or user Python, you need to change that to the ID. And that way, when Kubernetes looks at the pod, at basically the image metadata, it will know those numbers match and it won't flag and give you warnings. All right. And then the other one you wanna do is privilege escalation. You'll get lots of warnings if you don't do this. When you do scanners, scanners will say, hey, you need to prevent sudo essentially in the container. So assuming that you're not running as root in the container, then you add this third part and it will prevent anyone trying to escalate to root, even if they have permissions in the container, it will prevent it. And so all three of those I think should be in every one of your containers that follows the benchmark guidelines. That is what most apps need. They don't need root. They don't need special, you know, they, need, they don't need to run as ID zero. So do those three things in every one of your pots. That 
I think is a gold standard. First, you got to make the images available to not run as root. You got to build those correctly. But then in Kubernetes, you, you throw these three things in, you're already going to be doing great. Then you add your limits and your reservations for memory and CPU and all those things. If you do these scanners, they'll all complain. If you do something like Superlinter, which I've talked a lot about on this show, using Superlinter to scan all your YAML, including Kubernetes, including Terraform, including all these other things with a bunch of tools. And a lot of these things will warn you about security errors or security concerns. They'll warn you about the Docker file. They'll warn you about your Kubernetes YAML. They'll warn you about your Helm charts and your source code. It, it does all languages and configuration stuff. So check out Superlinter. I have examples and I tell you how to use them, how to use it reusable. So in GitHub, you can use reusable. It's hard to say. Workflows, reusable workflows are a cool thing. And I give you examples. The set comp by default is definitely a thing I would enable on clusters. And there are Kyverno and other tools we've had on this show. Again, search security in this channel. You'll get a good dozen videos that relates to different parts of all this stuff. But you can use policy things to kind of lock some of this stuff down as well so that your app developers have to obey your cluster security rules. All right. What about AWS EKS Fargate? Who does the scanning? So Fargate, the goal there is that you don't. Now, I don't know who does, but if you're talking about scanning nodes, you can probably run, the Kubebench can probably run in a container. I'm not actually sure. It may not allow you because of the permissions required. I haven't actually tried to do that. But the goal, the reason why you do Fargate or Google Cloud Run or Autopilot is so that you don't have to, these nodes go down and come up and they get patched and they get updated to the newest versions and you don't worry about it. Now, how you reason that in your organization and how you determine that you know, Fargate is sufficient enough for your security needs is really about diving into documentation, using the benchmark tools against it and making sure that it meets your requirements. But I tend to trust almost implicitly the cloud hosted Kubernetes versions because they're always going to have teams of security experts smarter than me. Like there's just no way I could possibly be as smart as those people are. So I tend to assume that there's by default, even though you trust and verify, you scan it. But yeah, I would be much more worried about ones I'm building myself and that I'm not locking down, you know, host permissions and doing all the right things with RBAC. Just try the tools that I'm mentioning. You may be able to run those in pods. And if you can't, then you can't. At some point you have to trust the vendor that's providing the service. So it just depends on how big of a, how big of a deal is your company? How can you negotiate security reviews? So I myself have not done like an intense in-depth security review of Fargate. So I'm not going to be able to give you much advice on that. So network policies, you've probably heard of them. Implement network policies so that the apps in certain containers can't get other namespaced containers, can't get access to those pods. By default in Kubernetes, unless you're using something like an EKS provided default VPC networking kind of thing, you tend to have to install a specific like Cilium or some network specific network policy controller that's managing your CNI and all that. So you want to do that upfront if you think you're ever going to need it, because it's going to be harder in the future to lock down pods, to only talk to the other pods they need to talk to. I tend to do things very namespace scoped. So all the apps need to talk to each other, go in the same namespace, and they don't talk to other namespaces. Traditionally, that's normally how I try to handle it. And then if you want to go even tighter than that, you can make sure that your front end container can only talk to your back end and your back end can only talk to the database, blah, blah, blah. Right. So you can do all that. That will help the exposure. So if someone were to somehow get onto your front end container, they can't reach the database. They would still have to then take over the back, you know, some sort of middle container that has access to the backend. So you can do all that with network policy, but it doesn't come free. It doesn't come out of the box. You have to write those policies. And so I would do that, but I wouldn't do that before you do things like lock down your images, have slimmer images, do all the security scanning in your images, get the set comp enabled, get, make sure the container's not running as root, make sure the container is running as that numbered user and it can't escalate privileges. Do all those things in your pod spec, then start looking at things like network policies. I think I find that network policies, doing things in images and putting them in your pod spec tend to be higher value and less effort than network policies, which can involve multiple teams. You've got to involve the security team because they got to maybe have access to these things and you've got to involve the dev team and the ops team. 
And so I tend to find those things take longer and are more complicated to get implemented. And there is a whole article on security context and other things in the Kubernetes docs. For those that want some light reading, there's lots of good stuff in here around the different things you can do inside that security context, like AppArmor or SE Linux. Those are options as well. You can enable them. You can use default policies. You can bring your own policies if you're that advanced. And so these are things that I tend to just turn on easy mode at first. And then once we get all the easy things done, we come back, we readdress it. We look at maybe some custom things that we might do ourselves to do that. Does Docker provide something equivalent to the network policies used in pods? Not really. I mean, let's just say that by default, Docker networks on the host are more secure than Kubernetes networks because Docker networks by default use IP tables and won't allow one container to talk to a different container that's on a different network. And Kubernetes, by default, every pod can talk to every pod. So I think Docker is more secure by default as long as you're isolating things on different networks. But if you want to customize that and make network policy rules, you can't really do that in Docker's default bridge driver or its overlay driver. You would need to go look at custom network drivers for Docker, of which I don't believe there are any that still are maintained. There's Weave, there's been a couple of other ones, but I don't know that any of them are still maintained. So that the problem with Docker is unless you want to use Swarm, you can't really do it across multiple hosts. Now, when you go to a Swarm and you're using that overlay driver, it does the same thing. The packets in that overlay network, because it's a different driver, they can't talk to other Docker networks unless you add them to that network. But it's a very, it's a very nice and easy approach, but it's not as flexible as Kubernetes. But Kubernetes isn't secure by default. So pick your poison. <laughs> and by the way, when you do, even if you use Docker underneath Kubernetes, Kubernetes controls all those settings. So you kind of lose some of this stuff. Like I talked about set comp being on in Docker by default, but when you run Kubernetes on top of Docker, you lose that because it disables that by default. So you have to re-enable it. And that's also true of the networking. You're not actually using the Docker networking the same way when you're using Docker in Kubernetes. So the point there is if you're running Kubernetes at all, you have to do things in the pod spec. You can't do them necessarily in Docker to my knowledge. If you do it inside Docker, you might break things. So I'm going to update that AMA discussion with some of the stuff I know about Kubernetes security. And that way you'll have Docker images, Docker and Kubernetes. And then who knows, maybe at some point I'll turn that into a blog article, which I would love to do because I get this question a lot. So I will hopefully someday have a, maybe a three-part article on image stuff, Docker host stuff, Kubernetes host stuff. You know, and we're not even getting into like third-party security monitoring tools and making security a part of your monitoring and all that stuff. There's a whole nother world there, which is heavily dependent upon security vendor tooling. But yeah, we need to have some experts on that. Is it possible to delete view contents of a Docker volume, which is binded to a running container? Yes, all volumes are just Linux bind mounts. So if you're in Docker on a Docker host, you'll see it under var lib docker. That's where volumes go by default. So if you're on the host, go look in var lib docker volumes. On Kubernetes, it will depend on your CSI, your storage driver for Kubernetes, and where does that store your files? But they're just files on the host. They're not hidden inside of some other file. They're just a directory. The key is you just need to use the describe command on your PVCs and eventually your volumes to figure out where they're stored, how you're storing them, what the file path is. So thank you. Can you always split your subnets into smaller sizes? Yes, you can both in Kubernetes and in Docker, you can control the IP subnet ranges used. Docker tends to prefer Docker networks of C-class. So, you know, 254 IP address, 254 IP addresses. If you want to create Docker networks that have thousands of IPs in the same Docker network, I think you'll run into scalability problems in Docker. I think their last opinion I heard was that you just need to redesign your setup so that you have less than 250 IPs per Docker network. In Kubernetes, you can change the default subnets for pods, for services, all that stuff to whatever you need. 
in Kubernetes, is it possible to update secrets on a running pod? I have heard dynamic config maps looking for some examples. Yes, the real trick with updating things in flight on pods is that does your app see the changes? Is your app designed to go and get that file or that environment variable again, right, as it's being updated? When I talk to teams about it, usually they're not. Their apps are not designed to do that. They only pull those settings in at startup. And so even if we could change them at runtime, the app wouldn't see it. So the app has to hop. It has to restart. I don't have an example for you. Sorry. Look for config maps on the file system to update. I'm not sure about environment variables changing in a running container. I think I'm not sure about that. Subnets follow up smaller than C size should be fine. Sure. Yeah. If you're talking about Docker specifically, you can create Docker networks with specific subnets and you can do classless, supernets, all that stuff. And then when you specify a container, when you do a Docker run, you can actually give it a specific IP address. <laughs> I don't know why you'd want to do that, but you could. Maybe you're using the host networking and you're disabling all the bridge networking and you're actually using virtual IPs from your physical host, physical subnet rather on the actual physical network. You can do that. You can do a Docker run and give it a specific IP even as well. Last question. Is there a way for verifying signature authenticity of pulling Docker images because data at rest and during transit can also be t tampered. Well, one of the things you should feel confident about is you get, you can't fake a SHA. So if you're using a trusted image registry and that's gonna have to use TLS, right? So you're encrypted in transit. And whenever you do a pull of an image, whether it's Docker, con Cryo, ContainerD, they all match the image SHA. So the way you do this is in your Kubernetes manifest. If you want to be certain that you get the exact SHA hashed image that you meant, when you update your production deployments, you're not gonna be putting in a tag, you're gonna be putting in the SHA hash. That's the tag you'll use. And then when you go to Kubernetes, it will ensure that it pulls that exact image that you built, which is that matching SHA. So if you can be certain at build time that that SHA, then you can also be certain of it at, on the host. And that can't really be forged. So you can trust in that. If you're looking for something further, look up content trust. So Docker content trust, there's a bunch of things going on there. Those are the keywords, Docker content trust or Kubernetes content trust. If you're focused more on what to do in Kubernetes, there's a lot of stuff happening in CNCF right now. So there's a tool called notary and there are other new tools coming out in the Kubernetes ecosystem and they're all around content trust. And so you might wanna add some of those extra layers where it will sign your images, and then you can lock down your host so they can only run signed images. But you don't need to do that in order to guarantee SHA. So if you wanna be certain you're running the exact image you built, you always tag, with, you use the SHA tags in your manifests. After that, you can go to the next level and make sure that the image was not just the SHA, that you cared about, but also it's been digitally signed, kind of like Git commits can be digitally signed. So you can do that with Content Trust. All right, and that'll do it, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. See you soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.